This summer we are starting a sermon series through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we, uh, we get through uh, into these sections, really just four sections in Genesis 1 through 11, beginning with creation, the fall, the worldwide flood, and then the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of nations. But Genesis 1 through 11 is so much more than just those four events. What it does is it answers some of these big questions that all of us carry in life. I can remember as a sophomore in high school, 16 years old, uh, going on my first um, uh, camping trip with just a handful of high school guys, and uh, we went out to Lake Thunderbird, uh, just about 20 or 30 minutes away from my hometown, and uh, found a great ridge um, away from the city where you could see all the lights, and we, uh, we cooked dinner, we made a big campfire, we set up tents. Uh, we did a few other things that uh, 16-year-old lost boys do. And, uh, and then we just began to sit by the fire for the next few hours and, uh, and just began to talk. And I remember the longer we went, the more we talked, the more questions we began to... We stopped getting into surface things. And as we began to see the stars and the Milky Way and uh, began to think about these things, we began to ask the same big questions that humans have been asking forever. Right? Things like, where do we come from? Is there a God? What's He like? What's our purpose? Is there some sort of life after death? And none of us had any answers, and none of us really knew much, but, but it was the first time in my life that I can remember really starting to ask those deep questions that all of us have. Well, this series in... Genesis 1 through 11, we're calling foundations because in many ways, Genesis 1 through 11 gives us those foundations and answers many of those fundamental questions that all people have. I remember seeing an interview with a woman and the interviewer was asking her um, about the earth, asking her some of these big questions, what her opinions were. And she said that, uh, that the earth is like a big plate suspended on the back of a turtle, which is walking along and carrying this disc on its back. And the interviewer had never heard that. And he said, well, what's under the turtle? And she said, another turtle. And he said, well, what's under that? And she said, it's turtles. Turtles all the way down. I'll never forget that interview. It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever heard. But it wasn't some crazy idea that this lady came up with. It's actually a worldview, a philosophy that, according to Wikipedia, alludes to the mythological idea of a world turtle that supports a flat earth on its back. And it suggests that this turtle rests on the back of an even larger turtle, which itself is a part of a column of increasingly larger turtles that continues indefinitely. This world will do anything to explain creation, right? Even if it means that we're all simultaneously being supported on the back of a bazillion turtles walking nowhere. <laughs> Worldviews world give us some sort of a framework for understanding our reality. And it's the job of, of a philosopher 
to help put together some sort of framework that gives us meaning and explains in all these details this larger framework. That's the work of a philosopher. They try to give us a unified answer to all those big questions in life. Origins, time, space, force, matter, energy, good and evil. Philosophers try to find a worldview that accounts for all of those realities of our existence. But for us, those who believe in Scripture as God's Word, we have in the Bible those big questions answered. Consider in just Genesis 1-11, through we have a Creator, that's a who, that speaks, and by the word of His voice, there is force. Actions take place just by speaking. So we have who, we have force, we have existence, which is matter. Uh, We have uh, a Creator God who populates it with animals and humans, giving them purpose and reason and a role within a created order. They have responsibilities and boundaries and law and requirements that are meant for societal thriving as well as for a personal relationship with God. And that's why law and society, and it also explains why evil broke loose when we broke those boundaries. The Bible tells us all this happened in the beginning, which accounts for time. And so there you have a unified philosophy. Time, force, matter, creator, uh, people, purpose, all of those things and more are given to us within just the very first pages of the Bible. This is why Jews for centuries did not produce a lot of philosophers. Occasionally you'll get a Spinoza or someone like that 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 will give some sort of a philosophical worldview. But for the most part, Jews didn't have questions. They had answers. They had answers because God had revealed Himself to them through the Word so that they had answers to these big questions. They were supposed to be a blessing and a light to all the nations. All the nations who are out there making up different ideas for creation, like turtles all the way down, the Jews had answers, and it came through the book of Genesis primarily. So before we begin this, uh, I want to tell you four lenses, or I'm sorry, three lenses through which I teach the book of Genesis. Now, you may or may not agree with these lenses, but, uh, but it's important for me to uh, let you know on the front end the lenses through which I view Scripture and Genesis um, so that you know that whether we differ right away on, on, uh, on the very beginning of this uh, summer sermon series, I just want you to know that if, if we have a differing opinion on some of these things, um, you'll still benefit throughout the summer as you interact with God's Word and through this teaching through Genesis. So number one, a lens through which I will teach Genesis 1 through 11. Occasionally I'll be uh, giving uh, opposing viewpoints just to let you know, but the lens number one that I view is a young earth created with age in six literal days by one eternal God and three persons spoken through His Word. Some see Genesis as mythology, Uh, or a symbolism. Some view the creation story as symbolic or poetic, or some other view that helps them somehow combine a modern, scientific, billions and billions of years sort of approach. But I believe in a literal six-day creation. I believe Adam and Eve were real people. I believe in a literal Garden of Eden. I believe that light was literally created before sun and moon on the third day. I affirm the biblical creation as described in Genesis 1 and 2. 
A second lens is that I will teach this through a complete canon and a, and a thorough narrative. What does that mean, a complete canon? Well, when Moses wrote the book of Genesis in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he wrote that to a specific group of people at a specific time. He wrote that to the exiles, the children of Israel who were in Egypt, who had crossed over uh, the Red Sea and wilderness wanderings. He wrote and presented the Pentateuch to the generation that would go into the land, the conquest. Well, that was thousands of years after creation. That was thousands of years, uh, I'm sorry, hundreds of years after the patriarchs. And so Moses wrote to a specific group of people for a specific purpose, and he told them only what they needed to know in order to go into the land and to, to, to go forward with the conquest. He didn't tell us everything that we want to know, right? We have limited information um, with the Pentateuch. But, as a result of a completed canon, a canon is just a body of writings, a scriptural body of writings, the 66 books of the Bible inform what we read in Genesis. And so we're free, and I'll be free to teach, throwing in New Testament and other Old Testament passages that inform what was taking place in Genesis. The point of that is that Scripture interprets Scripture and that everything within the 66 books of the Bible inform what Genesis 1-11 through 11, uh, will be used to shed light on these chapters. But I also believe that it will be a complete narrative, the 66 books of the Bible. With that being said, we see the, the Bible as a complete narrative, a unified story with characters and a climax and an ending and a story arc. And if you don't understand or can't comprehend the miracle of the Bible that we hold in our hands... Let me just say that, um, let's just say that in the United States of America, I chose 40 authors, uh, old and young, attorneys, doctors, farmers, shepherds, uh, just a variety of people in a variety of ages from a variety of places within just the contiguous United States. So I, I take those people and I say, write me a story about God and His interaction with you and the world. Would we expect in one language, in one generation, for those 40 authors from different walks of life and different places in the United States to write a cohesive story? No. No, but we have something amazing with Scripture written by over 40 authors on three different continents writing over a 1,500-year time period in three different languages, but still within the pages of Scripture, we find a compelling, unified story arc with characters that are developing and growing and hinted at in the beginning that are fully developed. So much so that the Old Testament has been referred to a room richly furnished but dimly lit, while the New Testament is that same room with lights on. It's all one big story that comes together. What we see beginning in Genesis will be completed in Revelation. Consider this. In Genesis, we read about the first heaven and earth. In Revelation, we read about the new heavens and earth. In the first book of the Bible, we have the first garden, the tree of life, and the tree of life is garden. But in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we have a garden city and the tree of life available to all. In the first book, we have the first marriage. And in the last book, we end with the last marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the first book, Satan tempts Eve to sin, 
And this enemy of humanity and God, Satan in the last book, is thrown into the eternal lake of fire. In Genesis, death enters the scene, but in Revelation, we have the proclamation that there will be no more death, no more crying, no more tears. Jesus saying, behold, I am making all things, what? New. A new creation comes at the end of the book. In Genesis, we have Babylon built. In Revelation, Babylon is destroyed. In Genesis, the Redeemer is promised. And in Revelation, the Redeemer reigns. And there are so many more seeds in Genesis that find their fulfillment in Revelation. It demonstrates a cohesive, unified narrative through Scripture. The third lens that I will be teaching from is the lens of a Christological focus. What does that mean? A Christological focus. It means that right away, if we read closely and carefully enough, you're going to see Jesus all through Genesis 1-11. through 11. Now, Larry already alluded to it, that, that uh, in the Genesis 3, after the fall of man, that God had to um, sacrifice an animal in order to cover their guilt and shame in the clothes that God provides. What does that remind us of? In Genesis 3, the Proto-Evangelion, that a seed of a woman, a masculine singular noun, he will crush the head of the serpent. That, who would be the one that would be to come that would crush the head of the serpent through one blow? It would be Jesus. And all through, in the coming of Noah, he said, his father said, this one will bring deliverance from the curse of the sin. They were all waiting. And what did Noah do? He built an ark that delivered his family through the waters of judgment in the same way that Jesus, those who are in Christ, will be delivered through the waters of the day of judgment. Listen, you can't help this summer but to be excited about the ways in which you will see Jesus and the gospel hinted at and dropped in such a way that you see its final fulfillment in Revelation and in the Gospels. If these aren't the same lenses through which you read Genesis, that's okay. I still want you to come. I still want you to say you have some sort of an evolutionary, scientific, billions and billions of years kind of lens of creation. Uh, I want you to, to hang around this summer. Uh, engage in dialogue so that you'll experience the things that we're having to talk about through Genesis 1-11. through 11. Uh, Let me just say a couple of housekeeping notes. Next week, Jonathan is going to cover Genesis 1, 1-13. So um, a handful of us will be traveling to our denominations conventional meeting um, in New Orleans. Uh, and so be praying for us. There will be five of us going as messengers. And so... Um, our flights lined up in just such a way that we would have to leave basically right now uh, if we were going to get through TSA. And so Jonathan has graciously uh, agreed to, to kick off our summer series in Genesis 1, 1 through 13. So he's going to answer and take care of the creation of the world in verses 1 through 13. So today I just want to give us a little bit of introductory material, those three lenses through which we're reading. But I also want to say this, uh, today's message is going to center on the things that we know about God Pre-creation. What's God doing before He created anything? And for an eternal God, for us to ask that of an eternal God, it's kind of silly to ask the question, what is an, uh, an eternal God doing? As though He had time on His hands. Uh, right? Time, we learn from the first words of the Bible, was created at the beginning. So God exists outside of time. 
Um, so it's silly for us to think that he was just waiting around as though he didn't have anything else to do before he created. But, but what we want to know is from our point of view, what was God doing? What was God's light, God's existence like before he created anything? You might be surprised at how much the Bible has to say about pre-creation. And I've given you on your handout, your listening guide, eight passages that give us a clue about who God is and what he was like before he ever created anything. Let me say a prayer and we'll look through these passages briefly this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its all sufficiency. We thank you that you are its author by your Holy Spirit in which you um, carried men along as they spoke uh, and as they heard from your spirit, they wrote as they were led, so that we may have a, an accurate preservation of your revelation of yourself to the world. And we pray that you would speak to us by your word, and that you would use your word to shape our worldview, and that you would use your word to help challenge the worldview that we've grown up with or experience in our current culture. Help us to be shaped and fashioned, as Romans 12:2 says, that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we would be transformed by your word in the, in the renewing of our mind. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Eight clues, eight passages that give us some inkling, some information. All of these passages, and there are many more, by the way, but all of these include the words or some combination like them that says before creation, before the world, from ages past, or something along those lines. The first one comes in John 17.5. The first one on your list is John 17.5. Jesus said, and now, Father, this is called the great high priestly prayer that Jesus in the upper room with his disciples after um, his betrayer, Judas, has gone out. Jesus is with them, and he's praying this prayer over his disciples throughout the, the chapter of John, recorded for us in chapter 17 of John. And Jesus prays this. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before there was anything, God was existing, one God and three persons, in this fellowship within Himself that is defined with this word glory. Jesus reveals that He and the Father were together before anything existed. Not only were they together, but they shared glory what does this word glory mean? How can we get a picture of this word glory? Well, I think Exodus 33 has a lot to say about the glory of God. When Moses, you remember the story, you don't have to turn there, but in, in Exodus 33, Moses is um, praying to the Lord, begging Him to come along with them. Uh, and he says, how will anybody know that we're your people unless you're here with us? And, and God says, my presence will go with you. And, and after he makes that promise in verses um, uh, 13 uh, through the end of chapter 33, Moses then says, if I know you and if you have shown favor to me, let me see your glory. And the Lord says, nobody can see my face and live, so I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will cause, and this is the understanding of glory, he says, and I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you so that you may see my robe and you shall see my glory from the backside, but no one can see my face. God 
showed Moses' glory, and it's described as all of his goodness. So listen, the glory of God is all of his attributes that radiate, as it were, in some sort of physical display or light display or some emanating wave after wave of his personhood, his complete totality. So God uh, radiating who he is outward. Because of the power of who he is, we can't look at his glory. God came to Moses on the mountain in the cloud, and Moses' face when he came down from the mountain was what? It was so bright, it was so radiant that the Israelites said, put a bag over your face, Moses. Put a veil over your face. We can't see, we, we can't stare into the glory that you've picked up just from being in the presence of God through this cloud on the mountain of God. Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw God sitting on a throne high and lifted up and all the angels crying out to one another in his presence saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In this vision, he was overwhelmed. He was so overwhelmed with dread and guilt over his sinful condition that he said, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You remember in Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up. And in Matthew 17, it says that they are paired to them, um, Elijah and Moses. But Jesus' clothes uh, became white as the sun. Mark says that they were bleached whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. And Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Are any of you able to stare into the sun. If we can't stare into the sun, then we will never be able to see the glory of God in and of ourselves. Jesus radiated this glory with the Father before anything was ever created. What does this tell you about God? It tells you that within Himself He is absolute and complete in his person, needing nothing. That God was completely self-existent, not dependent on anything. We have to take a breath of air every second. We have to have water. The human body can only go so long without water. We have to have food. We need things. We're completely dependent on God for the very next breath, for the very next heartbeat. God needs none of that completely absolute and total, and not just in some limited way. He can't be reduced to his parts. He is all of who he is in the fullest. And that totality of his person is too wonderful and too glorious for us to even imagine. We could no more look at his glory than stare into an eclipse or the sun. The second verse in the same passage, John seventeen twenty four. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before anything was created, Jesus and God were together sharing in the same glory and the same personhood. um, And that Jesus said, not only that, but you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
This sort of personhood that God enjoyed as one God and three persons is described to us as love. Now consider the alternative to that. In all sorts of mythologies, and all sorts of um, worldviews about a God, there is a wrathful God, there is an angry God, there is a violent God, there is a God of war, and while God contains some of those same elements of justice and punishment um, and wrath, all of those same features don't necessarily define God as a God of love. John tells us in 1 John that God is love and that Jesus in this relationship with God existed in this abounding love. It's a love that knows no boundaries. Humanly speaking, have you ever run out of love for someone? We talk about falling in love and falling out of love and love growing cold and becoming distant. And these are things that are foreign to God. He is abounding in love, and it's a love that knows no boundaries. God's love is an eternal attribute, completely fundamental to his character. And God not only is love, but he is willing to share his love, to display it. He doesn't hoard it. He gives it freely. He doesn't keep it from us and dangle it on a a, a hook in front of us. He lavishes us with it, and we see it most clearly in the sacrifice of his only son on the cross, that God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He's a personal God rather than some impersonal force or energy. Our world today, our culture today likes to talk about the universe. The universe brought me this and the universe is this and energy from the universe and wavelengths and all kinds of things. The Bible knows none of that. It describes a personal, loving, eternal God whose very existence is defined by love. The third passage is Proverbs 8. And in Proverbs 8, uh, we have wisdom personified. Um, We covered this in depth last summer during our summer series through Proverbs, where Jesus is actually the person of wisdom described in Proverbs 8. And we get these sort of hints from that in in, in the, the idea that he existed before creation. He walks in perfect righteousness and justice, loving those who are found by him and being found by those who seek him. Jesus was beside the creator God, it says in Proverbs 8, like a master workman creating with him, and he was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Do you get that? God and Jesus daily each other's delight, rejoicing in one another. John affirms that in the next passage, John 1, 1 through 2, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, writing by his inspiration of the Holy Spirit, equates Jesus as the word by which all of creation was spoken into existence. And that same word was not only with God, but it was also God in the beginning. We see these hints of a trinity, trinitarian, a triune God, although the Bible doesn't use the word trinity anywhere. In the very beginning, it says, let us make man in our image as image bearers. And we have God the Father, Uh, creating through the spoken word and the spirit hovering over the waters. All of these notions can be teased out throughout all of Scripture to give us our doctrine of one God in three persons. And don't ask me to explain that, by the way. Uh, There are no analogies sufficient that can explain the Trinity completely. 
Um, what does this tell us about God in his pre-creation existence? This verse, John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It tells us that before creation, God and Jesus were together. And in order for something real, something tangible, something existing, something concrete that you can experience, in order for that something real to be made, like I have flesh and blood and bones and, and, and I'm as real as you are, right? We don't live in some sort of simulation or computer program or mind. We are, we are actual um, living, breathing beings with reality. We exist made out of material with a real existence. C.S. Lewis describes for us that God, therefore, must be real, Something real creates something real. And he says this way, unless the origin of all other things were itself concrete and individual, nothing else could be so. For there is no conceivable means whereby what is abstract or general could itself produce concrete reality. Bookkeeping continued for all eternity could never produce one farthing. Meter in and of itself could never produce a poem. Bookkeeping needs something, namely real money put into an account, and meter needs something else, real words fed into it by a poet, before any income or any poem can exist. If anything is to exist at all, then the original thing must be. Not a principle, not a generality, not an ideal or a value, but an utterly concrete fact. So when Jesus was the Word made flesh, it's not that He became real or with some idea or some force or some energy without personhood. It means that He was real because He created something real. We know that He existed eternally in this loving relationship with Himself. And then fifth, we learn something more specific. 1 Peter verses one, chapter 1, verses 19-20 through 20, tells us that Jesus, the pre, we were bought, we were ransomed, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for our sake. So before creation ever started, Jesus' sacrifice would be established. This wasn't plan B. The cross was not um, um, circumstances that Jesus found himself in and couldn't scramble out of before he got caught. From eternity past, before the creation of the world, the blood of Jesus Christ was ordained to be the perfect, spotless sacrifice atoning for our sin. God was never not in control. Theologians call these the eternal decrees or the first decrees that before God even decided to create, that as he, create, uh, as he began to have these conversations, this is all theology talk, it's not really a conversation that God had, but, but he had to uh, agree that Jesus would be the sacrifice for the inevitable end of sin, the inevitable that man would sin against him. This was the plan before creation, 1 Peter 1 tells us. Sixth passage here, what, is we, what do we learn about God before creation? 1 Corinthians 2, 6-7, through 7, uh, Paul writes, Yet among the mature we impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages 
for our glory. What is the secret and hidden wisdom that was decided on or decreed before creation started? What's the secret will of God? What's the hidden wisdom of God? God decreed before the ages that the message of the gospel of salvation for sinners through faith in Jesus Christ would both be um, declared publicly, but would also be rejected by the wisdom of this world. Paul said it this way, the news of the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe, it's the glory of God. So not only would the message of God be declared, but there would be a, divide, a division between two groups of people, the sheep and the lambs, um, the, the, the goats who would believe, the weeds and the wheat, all these sort of metaphors that Scripture uses that, that the gospel would go out and some of you even in this very room would reject Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross for you. Before the ages began, this is the mystery, the secret, the hidden will of God is that some, by hearing the same gospel, many of you nodding and agreeing and on the edge of your seat as you listen to this passage are, are also simultaneously in the same room being met by people who are so bored with the gospel message. It doesn't appeal to them. It doesn't even get through. It's, it's amazing the fact that the same gospel message through the eternal God who loved you so much that He gave His only Son, to some people would, you would receive that in your heart like fertile soil, receiving good news, while others say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And that you would continue to reject Jesus. That is the mystery of the secret and hidden wisdom of God that He decided beforehand before He even created Number seven, it says that Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, with, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, that at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of, our, of God our Savior. If you zone in on the, the phrase, in hope of eternal life, Verse 2, which God promised before the ages began, shows us that something about God, an eternal God, desired to share His goodness for all eternity with a people He would create. That we were designed for eternity. The psalmist says that uh, He has put eternity in our hearts. Eternity is a part of us, all of us, to the core of our being, acknowledges that there's something more after life. There's something more. That we don't just, it's not an annihilationism, that we don't just cease to exist. But we were created, and we were, we were created eternally. All of us carry the hope of eternal life. And that's what God promised before the ages began, that we would carry this hope of eternity. And the eighth and final verse that we'll talk about this morning, about pre-creation, is in Ephesians 1, particularly verse 4, that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before creation, God knew you. Even before He began a single work of creating anything, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be saved so that we may be holy and blameless in spite of the actual fact that we're not holy and blameless. 
And this is confirmed in Revelation 13, 7 through 8, when we read that some people's names are written in the book of life. Who God is in eternity past, before creation, gives us great insight into who He is eternally. So what? What about, so what? These eight verses, what do they mean? What difference does this make in the way you think, feel, and live in the world today? Christopher Watkins says the answer is that it makes a huge difference. And he gives a few reasons why. Number one, God is real and personal. You may not have thought that before. You may have thought that he was some sort of a legend or a myth or that this was written by a man dreamed up somewhere in the Middle Ages, I mean in the Middle East, and passed down and corrupted through this Bible. That's certainly how our culture presents it. Or maybe you, like our culture, thinks that um, God is really some sort of universal consciousness or some sort of impersonal force or energy. The Bible presents him as real and personal. The second thing this helps us understand is that fundamentally God is love. Fundamentally God is love. And that's a God that you can, if he's personal and he's love, That's some of the greatest news that we could ever know about our Creator. Consider that if He was real and a tyrant, or real and all wrath, or all violence, or all anger, or completely um, uncaring, the fact that He is real and personal and loving gives us great hope. And the third thing we see about God is that He is altogether almighty, and completely sovereign. And this gives you comfort, and me comfort, knowing that whatever circumstances you face today, don't catch God off, he's not catching him by surprise. If he knows every thought in your head, if he knows how many hairs are on your head, some of you more than others, right? If God knows all of this about us, uh, and he is, as Larry quoted earlier from Tim Keller, that, that he knows um, just how sinful and wicked we are, but at the same time also loves us more deeply than anyone else. The fact that he's sovereign, John 10 says that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. You should have incredible hope and security in the, in the God as presented in the Bible. That no matter what circumstances you're facing today, He is as available and as real and as um, um, caring for you today as He always was and always will be. We take great comfort knowing who God is as revealed in who He is in pre-creation, but even more so through His created world. And we're going to see more of the glory and the wonders of God as we go through this series this summer. Father, we thank You that... You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, We give you great thanks and worship today that you chose to be a revealing God, a God who makes himself known, who doesn't just hide in the clouds or in the universe or in the cosmos or uh, somewhere far away, but that you have made yourself known to us that we may be eternally with you. We thank you that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So we praise you and we worship you as the God who is and who was and who ever will be. We thank you that you are the great I am, eternally existing as one God in three persons. We thank you for making yourself known to us and especially for having mercy on us. Let us, as Moses prayed, show us your glory that we may see you and we may love you more deeply and we may trust you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.